Well, good morning again. Welcome to Grace Church, Medina East Campus. Uh, very thankful to be here with all of you this morning at our 1115 service. Also welcome those of you who are participating or partaking of this online. Uh, just really happy to be here. Uh, if you don't know me, uh, just allow me a second to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at Medina East. I have the great privilege of overseeing our Live It ministries. Uh, we have a mission statement here at Grace. Know it, live it, give it away. It is the story of Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the good news about all that Jesus is. And so I just have this awesome privilege to oversee life groups and <clears throat> what it would look like to live out the story of Jesus, to live the gospel message of Jesus out in our community here in Medina. So really grateful and thankful to be here this morning and sharing with you guys. Um, we have been in a series that actually began, oh, about honestly three months ago. So it's kind of a bigger or a longer series for us here at Medina East. And uh, this series, as you can see from the graphics behind me, we have been calling Activated Followers of the Way. Activated Followers of the Way. And just to give us maybe a 30,000 foot view of what we've been attempting to do throughout this series in these last several months, is basically we have been looking at the life and the practices, like the behaviors, the beliefs, and the habits of these early followers of Jesus, these early Jesus communities known as, known as the church, uh, that appear in the first century and are recounted for us in a book of the Bible that is called <clears throat> the Book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles. And so essentially in this series, we've been looking to mine some of those, again, those beliefs, uh, the motivations, the concerns, the habits, and the patterns and the practices of these early followers of Jesus. Uh, but we haven't been just interested in mining the scripture or mining acts for those things for some academic pursuit uh, about being able to identify what the early church did. Instead, we want to pick up some of the cues from the early church and actually discover what it might look like for a church today, say the Medina East Campus of Grace Church right here in Medina in the 21st century, what it would look like for us to be faithful to Jesus in our times. We look to share the hope of who he is with our world and our community. And so um, in, in, as a way to kind of uh, orient ourselves or provide a pathway through this series, since it's been a longer one, we've actually broken up uh, this series into three distinct parts. And so about three months ago, we began with part one, and we looked at what we called the message of Jesus, the message of Jesus. And in that part of the series, we again looked at the book of Acts and the patterns and the practices of the early church, and we asked these kinds of questions. We asked, what is the core content of what these followers of Jesus preached and what they proclaimed throughout the Roman world of their day? In other words, what is the story of Jesus? How did they communicate that story? Who was Jesus? What did he do? And why did Jesus matter? And so we looked at that in the first part of the series, and then in the second part of the series, right before Christmas of the holiday season, we looked at part two, which was what we called the mission of Jesus. So we had the message of Jesus, and in the mission of Jesus, we asked questions like these. What was the sense of purpose and the sense of responsibility these early followers of Jesus had that stemmed from the new identity that they clearly found in Jesus together? And so if the message of Jesus is what is the core content, the mission of Jesus is what is the great sense of vocation and responsibility that this early church had to get that message out to bring hope to the wider world around them. And so after we've gone through those two parts, again, we took a little bit of a hiatus or a break <clears throat> during the holiday season, the month of December, 
And last week, we picked up this series by introducing, Pastor Tony introduced us to part one of this series that we are now calling the, the method of Jesus. So we have the message of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and now we're looking at the method of Jesus. And I think for most of us, when we encounter the word method, I think for most of us, we could probably pretty, instinct, pretty instinctively or like pretty easily figure out what we're after in this series. I mean, you can actually just go to like the dictionary definition of method to see that this is pretty simple. And for those of you who know me, you knew you were going to get a dictionary definition because I'm on stage today, don't you? Yeah, so I got one laugh, which is good. We're off for a good start. But like if you were to go to the dictionary definition of method, <clears throat> here's what you get. You get that a method <clears throat> is a procedure, it's a technique, or it's a way of doing something. It's like an outline or it's the step-by-step -step of how you would do something. So if the message of Jesus is a little bit about the what, if the mission of Jesus is the why, the method of Jesus would be the how. It's the procedure. What are the steps that we should take to live out the gospel story and share Jesus together? And it's a procedure, technique, or a way of doing something. And all you project managers in the room rejoice about this last piece, right? Especially in accordance with a definite plan. In other words, you have a goal. You have something that you want to attain to in the end that helps you define all the constituent parts and all the steps that you would take to get to that goal. And so again, when we're talking about the method of Jesus, we are gonna do what we've been doing throughout this whole series with this in mind. What we wanna do is we wanna look at the different methods that Jesus used, the different practices of the early church, what they did step by step, how they did what they did step by step, and we want to basically learn what it would look like for us to be faithful to those kinds of things here in the 21st century. <clears throat> and so basically today, because when you talk about the, the method of Jesus, there are any number of different methods and techniques and procedures that you could find in the book of Acts that the early church employed that would be helpful for us in our great goal of sharing Jesus with the world. So today, here's what I'm going to do. We are going to just look at one specific method that I think is very important and I think is found very clearly in the book of Acts. And I'm just going to give it to you like this. I'm not going to veil this in mystery. I'm not going to try to trick you. There's no pretext or anything like that. This is what we're after today in terms of the method of Jesus. What we want to do today is we want to identify the method Jesus outlined specifically for this. For human beings to respond to his offer of new life. So if part of the significance of Jesus is that he died for the sins of humanity and that in his resurrection, he offers a kind of new life and new way of living that can be grabbed a hold of by faith by those who would follow him, if that's the case, if Jesus offers that freely and graciously to humankind, to us as human beings, what are the steps that we would need to take to respond to that offer or that gift of new life. Another way of saying that is, what is the procedure or the technique for a person to experience something that the Bible over and over again calls salvation? That all throughout scripture, we get this idea that what Jesus does in the life he offers is referred to as this idea of a salvation experience. Being rescued from sin and death, being rescued from the kingdom of darkness, and following Jesus into the freedom and the, into the kingdom that he has built and of whom or which he is the king. And so today we're looking for this. What is the step by step? What's a guy got to do to respond to Jesus' off, Jesus's offer of new life, his offer of salvation life? 
And so what I want to do today is I actually want to go to a passage of scripture that we have looked at several times before in this holistic series, Activated Followers of the Way. Uh, We've looked at it several times before, but I think it gives us a great indication of what the proper or appropriate response is for a person who is looking to grab a hold of Jesus and follow him into the freedom and the life that he desires for us. And that passage is found, again, we're in Acts. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Acts 2, 37 through 41. So if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to get those out uh, and make your way to this passage. Um, It will be on page 884 in those Bibles that are under the seats in front of you if you don't have one with you. And then lastly, we would just say this. If you don't have a Bible that you own, uh, we want you to take one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. We want you to take that home with you. That is yours. It's just maybe our way of saying thank you for being here and sharing this time together with us, but also the commitment that we have as a church to really get God's word, because that's what we believe the Bible is, to really get God's word into your hands. And so um, as you're making your way out to Acts 2, 37 through 41, here's what I want to do just very quickly. I want to set the scene a little bit because there are 36 verses of things that have happened before we get to our passage or the text that we are going to look to today. So let me just set the scene a little bit. Uh, In the first 36 verses of Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, who is an early follower of Jesus, he's also a leader in this early Jesus movement, these communities, these churches, The Apostle Peter has just gotten finished in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, preaching what is arguably the most clear, succinct, and potentially most powerful presentation of who Jesus was, what he did, and why he mattered. The preaching of the gospel, which is known as the good news about what Jesus has come to do. And actually, uh, you'd find in Acts chapter 2 that there was uh, an assembly of various representatives from nations that had gathered in this ancient city of Jerusalem, and they had experienced the Holy Spirit being poured out or descended on these apostles, on Peter and his companions. Now, this is really significant because in the Old Testament, God had promised to empower people in the kind of relationship and life he desired to have with them. He had promised that he would liberally and freely pour out the Holy Spirit as a means for people to engage in a vibrant way in the relationship that he called them to. So the Holy Spirit descends, the crowd marvels, and Peter stands up and he delivers this sermon. Now, we don't have time to read Peter's sermon today, but here's, here's two things that you need to know, two emphases that you will find in Peter's sermon if you were to read it. And I encourage you to do that maybe after class today, right, as you go home. But here are the two things. <clears throat> Number one, Peter in this sermon emphasizes the resurrection of Jesus. It's a major emphasis. So it's this idea that Jesus died for the sins of humanity, but God looked at that death as what might be called effective or efficacious for people who would place their faith in Jesus. And so God raises Jesus from the dead as an act of vindication and validation, basically saying everything that Jesus did on the cross, everything that Jesus taught in his ministry was 100% true, and you could take it to the bank, and you could count on it. So Peter emphasizes the resurrection, And he also emphasizes the ascension, or what might be called the exaltation of Jesus. That Peter emphasizes that Jesus not only was raised by God the Father, but that God the Father ascended him into heaven, and that even right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God with all rule, power, authority, might, and dominion. Like over all the earth, over the entire cosmos, the entire universe, Jesus is in charge. And so basically, Peter concludes his sermon in verse 36, 
And he says to the crowd, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. He says Jesus is in charge. And so naturally, since Jesus is in charge, we would say that if anyone has authority to offer the kind of life God desires us to live, the kind of salvation, if anybody has authority and power to offer that kind of life to human beings, it's the king. It's, it's Jesus. Why? Well, because he's in charge. But here's the thing. Once you know that Jesus is in charge, once you know that he freely offers a salvation kind of living to anyone or any human, the next logical question is, well, how do I get in on that, right? How do I, what is the appropriate response? Maybe in other words, how does a person hitch their life up to Jesus and experience the life that he desires for us? And so that brings us to verse 37. So Luke, who is the writer of the Acts of the Apostles of the book of Acts, he says this, when the people, so this gathered crowd in Jerusalem, when the people heard this, the preaching of Peter's sermon, the gospel, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, naturally, what should we do? How should we respond? This, this makes sense, right? What's the proper procedure or the technique or the thing that we need to do to receive this life? And Peter replies, he's ready to go. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, I love this, for the forgiveness of your sins, that though your sins have created a barrier and a separation between you and God, in the name of Jesus and for what he's done, he offers genuine life and our sins can be forgiven. And he says also, your sins are forgiven, but there is a gift for the empowerment of that life. He says, you will receive the gift of God's very own Holy Spirit. You have everything you need for this. He says, this promise of the Spirit, this promise of God's life is for you, but it's also for future generations on down through history and even lands in our time. The promise is for you. It's for your children and for all who are far off, for anyone or all whom the Lord our God will call. And so with many other words, Peter, he warned them and he pleaded with them Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Actually, in the original language, it's a passive. It should be, be saved. Like, grab a hold of this salvation life. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. All right, so as we look at this passage again, as we kind of start from the top, it's pretty obvious that the crowd gets the message of the gospel that Peter has just been preaching. And how do we know this? Well, Luke tells us right off the bat that when they heard this, immediately he says they were cut to the heart. Now, this phrase, cut to the heart, is kind of like a euphemism in the first century or a figure of speech. And it refers to this idea of a deeply seated conviction in the depths of one's soul as to how they might experience salvation. They, they see that Jesus is the answer. He's the one. The Spirit convicts them, almost like a surgeon's precision knife going into their heart to where they're convicted. They're like, okay, Jesus is it. He's the king. And so, again, they do what any one of us might do if we heard a message like this and the Spirit convicted us. They ask, brothers, what shall we do to be saved? What's a guy got to do, again, to get in on the rescue plan of Jesus? 
And so notice, Peter actually gives two things. Again, he's ready to go. He's ready to respond to this. And he gives two things in terms of like maybe, again, a sequence, a method, or a procedure to respond to Jesus's offer of life. And the first thing is what? Peter replies. He says, well, here's what you got to do. First, repent. Repent. Do you think he said it like that? Maybe. I don't know. But you got to repent. Now, here's the thing. Uh, For many of us in this room, and I would fall into this category, uh, my guess is that when we hear or encounter the word repent in the Bible, maybe some of us uh, could possibly have accrued some baggage with regards to this word, or maybe some images or some ideas that might immediately leap into your mind when you hear this word. I don't know, maybe some of you are like me. When I hear the word repent, my mind immediately sketches this picture of a guy on a street corner. (laughs) He's standing on top of a box to make himself feel taller and maybe more imposing. I don't know. And he's got a bullhorn, and you're like, dude, why do you need the bullhorn? You love to shout. That's really evident. We can hear you, bro. And typically through the bullhorn, you're like, repent, you evil, filthy worms. Like there's this finger pointing idea or this image or this feeling that you get, repent. Why? Well, because you're a piece of garbage and you need to know it. If you don't repent, then you're going to hell. That kind of idea. That's what pops into my mind. Now, some of you, that might not pop into your head and thank God for that, right? But uh, for some of you, when you hear the word repentance, right, you, you hear the word repent, you might easily think, or the first thing you think about is like, well, that's just a term that refers to the fact that I have to constantly feel bad about myself. I have to constantly feel sorry. I need to be in a perpetual state of remorse. I've got to be like the Eeyore Christian, or I've got to be the, the one that walks around with a rain cloud over his head. I suck. I'm terrible. I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, listen, in no way, shape, or form am I minimizing the idea of contrition or sorrow for sin. I think that is a very biblical idea before God. We ought to be sorrowful of the things that we have done to sever the relationship, but also the things that we've done to break God's heart. But here's the thing. Repentance doesn't mean to just always feel bad about yourself. In fact, in the original language, the word that's used for repent here is a word that is pronounced metanaeo, metanaeo. I'm not going to ask you to say it. It's awesome. Metanaeo. And look at this. Look at what's on the screen. Simply put, it's so much more simple than what we might think it is. Simply put, to repent means to change one's mind. To change one's mind. In other words, our mindset, we've believed a certain set of principles or propositions We believe them. We think they're true. We've been confronted by other evidence. And it is a decision point that says, I'm no longer going to buy into those propositions. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change the way I think. Now, here's what's cool. Often in Scripture, the idea of repentance and the changing of one's mind is almost like the changing of one's mind kind of kicks off a sequence of changes that occurs throughout the person's life when they genuinely and authentically repent. So in other words, to change one's mind frequently in Scripture when one repents, the change of mind tends to trickle down and flow down into the person's heart, the seat of who they are, their desires, their will, their motivations, what they want most in life. And the change of mind then kicks off a progressive change of heart a revolution of what I want most in life. And this change of mind that goes down into a change of heart also then spills out into a change of behavior, into a change of action. 
And so repent is less like, I repent that I'm never good enough. And we could say, repent might be more like me saying, well, I repent of eating McDonald's every day for the rest of my life. Why do I repent of that? Well, I've changed my mind because I know that if I continue to do that, I am straight up headed for a triple bypass surgery. Like, I know that. And so what, what am I doing when I say I repent of McDonald's? It starts in my mind. I've made a decision knowing all of the ingredients in the Big Mac, and I've made a change of mind that then eventually will flow down into a change of desire. Increasingly, I don't want to eat the Quarter Pounder anymore. It's disgusting. Sorry, McDonald's. It's disgusting. Like, but then will eventually spill out into a change of course, a 180-degree turn. Like, I'm not going to find my car in the drive through line at McDonald's anymore once I've genuinely repented. And so I think, again, what we could say this, Peter says, step one, step one. If you want to respond to the salvation life that Jesus offers you, if you want to find freedom of life, he says, you need to make a decision. And it's a decision that produces both a change of heart and then eventually, progressively in your life, will produce a change of action. And so Peter starts, he says, repent, but he doesn't stop there. He also adds here, he says, repent, but also be baptized, be baptized. So um, a few months ago, actually, Pastor Tony walked through this very passage in one of the installments in the Message of Jesus series. And uh, so I won't go thoroughly into baptism because he did a marvelous job of that. And if you weren't around or if you forgot what he said, uh, you can check out that message. I would encourage you to do so. Uh, all the messages that we have in this series are on our website, medinaeast.gracechurches.org. And again, what was really cool is when Tony taught about baptism here, he actually had uh, a spontaneous call to respond to be baptized. And uh, we had a spontaneous baptism and 41 people got baptized in that weekend, and they didn't know they were going to do it before they walked in to the building this, that weekend. So that was awesome. And, but suffice it to say, uh, this idea of baptism, when Peter refers to this, uh, we said this, or Tony said this a few months back, basically you can think of baptism as the first act of obedience that a follower of, that a follower of Jesus will make in response to their commitment to Jesus as the Lord of their life. It's the first act of obedience in a Christian's life. Now, we need to say very, very uh, plainly that baptism doesn't do anything in and of itself. The act of baptism is repeatedly throughout the New Testament a response. It's an outward declaration of something that has already occurred inwardly in the change of someone's mind and as it goes down into their change of heart and their change of action. It is the first step of obedience to indicate what has already taken place in the heart. Baptism is not a magical thing. But what does it symbolize? What does baptism symbolize? Well, I, I would confer you or uh, refer you to uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. So if we want to know what baptism is and what Peter is saying is a step of obedience or response to Jesus' offer of the salvation life, the apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, we, so if you're a follower of Jesus, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. So if you know anything about the practice of baptism, you dunk somebody underwater, and when they come out, they're out of the water and they're baptized. And so Paul says that when you go under the water, going under the water is a symbol of the burial of your old way of doing life. You're rejecting that. It's part of that repentance, that change of mind. I'm putting that away. I'm no longer going to be defined. My identity is not going to be in the life that I once lived. And going under the water signifies the burial of the old way of living. 
Paul goes on to say, in order that in the same way Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too, when we come out of the water, we are symbolizing that we now have this new life of Jesus pulsing within us, and we can live as different people with our identity in his resurrection, living in his resurrection way. And so baptism means it's an act of identification, and this act symbolizes, again, the death of the old way of life, and it's an enlivening to the new life that Jesus offers. So by the time we get back to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, we would think that the response of Peter to the crowd when they say, what must we do, Peter? Peter says, you're going to change your mind. It leads to a change of heart. It leads to a change of behavior. And you must promote that or you must profess that outwardly in baptism. By the time we come to the end of the story in Acts 2, that's it, right? We, we know what the method of Jesus is for what it means to for a person to be saved. That seems to be really clear and evident. The technique or the procedure or the way of doing something that is in accordance with God's divine plan for salvation. That, that this, that number one, if you repent, and number two, if you're baptized, you will be saved. You will be saved. So if you confess your sin, and then if you also confess that Jesus is Lord, and if you profess those thoughts and ideas and those decisions out in baptism, then that would mean that you have everything that you need to experience all the blessings and all the benefits of having a relationship with God through Jesus because of what Jesus has done. And we might think that that's it, right? That's what Peter says. Salvation achieved. Hashtag blessed, right? That you have, you have everything that you need, right? Right? And as uh, the peers of my 17-year-old daughter might say, they might say, that's totally slay. Slay. Salvation slayed, right? Apparently that means accomplished or you're like victorious. I literally have no idea. I'm 42 years old, people. So, but, but amen. There, I got an amen out of that one. Thanks, thanks so much for that. I appreciate it. Now listen, not for a second do I think that either of these two things that Peter said are inconsequential. They're absolutely pivotal. They are essential ingredients in what it would look like for a person to respond to Jesus's offer of salvation life and grab a hold of that life. But let me just tell you this. Some of you, some of you might be surprised a little bit at what I'm about to say. Is that even though, even though repentance and what baptism signifies are absolutely two essential responses to come into the life of Jesus, I actually think that there is another essential ingredient that can be found in Acts chapter 2 in the method that, that, that many of us might easily overlook and that we too often miss, myself included. And I would go as far to say, uh, to say this to you this morning, is that, guys, I think it is definitely possible that if we continue to overlook this one key component of the life that Jesus wants for us in responding to that, we run the risk not only of missing out, but we run the risk of forfeiting one of the most powerful means that Jesus has provided to his followers to grow in the salvation life that he freely offers because he died and rose again for us. And so that then obviously begs the question, well, what's missing? 
It seems like Peter says, repent and be baptized. What's missing? Well, let me put it to you this way. Let me put it to you this way, okay? So we might think that repentance and baptism is the end of the story because that is the end of the story of the events of Pentecost. We might think that the end of the story occurs here in verse 41, so that when we read, with many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And they respond, right, in repentance and baptism. Those who accepted his message, who had their mind changed, they got baptized. And about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Now, we might think initially that this is the end of the story. And probably for a number of reasons, but maybe it's quite possible that even in the way that our Bibles are sometimes laid out, we could assume that verse 41 is the climax. It's the end. It's the capstone of what needs to happen to respond to the offer of salvation. Such that if we were going to go on further in Acts chapter 2, and we start in verse 42 all the way to the end of the chapter, where it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, And when it talks about this snapshot of the life and the vitality that existed in these early followers of Jesus in these Jesus communities, we might think that this 42 through 47 is relatively separate from the events that have occurred on the day of Pentecost all the way up to verse 41. And why do we think that? Well, it doesn't help us that even in the way a lot of our English Bibles are laid out, there is a paragraph break that occurs in between verses 41 and 42. Furthermore, there are many English Bibles, and I think actually the Bibles under the seats in front of you do this. Some English Bibles actually add a section header after verse 41 and verse 42, saying something to the effect of the fellowship of believers, which might lead us to believe again that 41 is concluded, and now we are on to something new and something different. But this, guys, this blew my mind as I was studying and prepping for this message this weekend. Many scholars, many scholars, and many Bible geeks point to the fact that, man, we didn't have chapter divisions in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. We didn't have verse divisions. We certainly didn't have paragraph breaks, and we didn't have section headers. And I'll appeal to something that Pastor Tony said last week as he shared with us some tips about how to really read the Bible well and interpret its message and what it's saying. Tony said this is super important, that context is king. Context is massive. What comes before and what comes after, whatever passage you're reading, is super, super important to understanding the passage that you're looking to interpret. And so many Bible scholars and many Bible geeks, they maintain that actually Acts 2.42 doesn't belong as the header of a new section. Look at this. That Acts 2.42 belongs as the climax and the culmination of what it would mean for a person to respond to the freely available and gracious gift of salvation that Jesus offers to them. And this is awesome because you can even see this, right? Verse, verse 42, guys, who are the they that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching of the fellowship of the breaking of bread and prayer? Who are the they? It's the 3,000, the 3,000 who made the decision, who repented and were baptized. Now, guys, you've got to see this. As as simple or as maybe silly for some of you as this might seem, as, as simple as this is, there is a powerful, powerful truth that is embedded in the reality of this being the capstone of Peter's preaching and the response. 
And I don't think I could put it any, any differently than this. I think what this is saying is massive, and it's this. That community, vibrant relationships of followers of Jesus living life together and investing in one another, that community is not an optional addendum to the salvation life. It's not something that we get that's optional or preferential. No, instead, I think Jesus wants us to see that community isn't an optional addendum to the salvation life. Community is essential. It's an essential component of this Christian life. Because community is the means by which Jesus employs to work out his transformational power so thoroughly and completely in those who would repent and be baptized, in those who say yes to him. That if we were going to decide to see community as optional, if we were going to opt out of community, I just don't think Jesus would have understood what we were talking about. If we looked at the risen Lord of the world and said, Jesus, thank you for procuring salvation and life for me. I want to engage in a personal relationship with you. And he said, well, I provided you community to function and to grow in that. And you'd be like, nah, Jesus, really not for me. I don't dig the community thing. Jesus would have been like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? This is an essential part of the great gifts that I have given you to live the kind of life that I want for you. That to opt out of community would be maybe something similar to, like, let's just say, if I agreed to marry my wife, right? I agreed to go into the marriage ceremony. I said all the I do's. And yet, if I decided that living with her for the rest of my life in the same house was optional. I mean, that's silly, right? But if you think about it, I could conceivably, I could conceivably be cut to the heart by my love and my care and my affection for my wife. I could be deeply convicted that I want to spend the rest of my life with her in relationship. I could even go into the wedding ceremony. I could repent. I could change my mind. I could repent of all the things that existed in my life that would keep me from moving closer to her in deepening relationship. I could repent of all. I could lay down the former way of life and say, I'm picking up the new one with you, babe. I, could, I wouldn't really do that, by the way, but... I could go down the aisle. No, I don't go down the aisle. She does. I could stand at the end of the aisle. I could watch her walk down, and I could look into her eyes, and I could declare with great conviction my deep love for her, right? I could even say I do as a pledge to entrust. You know what I could also do? I could give her an outward symbol of the thing that's gone on in my heart and my desire to be with her. I could, if you like it, then you put a, should, should have put a ring on it, right? I could do all of that. But listen, I could demonstrate this commitment, but if I never lived life with her daily, if I never took up residence and continued to build the relationship that we just inaugurated on our wedding day, could I, could I truly experience the fullness of what it means to be married to her? Because I think the answer is completely the answer is no, no, it's not possible. Why? Well, I guess it's only when and if I were to continue to deepen the marriage relationship with her day by day, moment by moment, on into the future, to grow in that marriage relationship, it would only be then that my initial decision, that my initial declaration was proved to be real and authentic. 
And it proved to actually bring me into the vibrancy of a married life that marriage is intended to be. And guys, I think when it comes to this idea of Jesus' offer of salvation life, the 3,000 in Acts 2, I think they just intuitively, instinctively, they intimately knew this, didn't they? Yes, guys, of course. Of course they made decisions for Christ. Of course they repented and believed. But they also rigorously and vehemently pursued a deepening relationship with Jesus, the author of that salvation life, precisely through the genuine relationships that they had with each other as brothers and sisters in their father's family. As we can see this in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves. This word devotion isn't just a, a word of sentiment or affection. Oh, I feel so devoted to you, Justin Bieber heart pound. This word devoted in the original language literally means you are so utterly preoccupied with this thing that you see everything about your life, everything that you are and all that you possess as existing to be poured into this thing. And so the early church, that level of devotion, they devoted themselves together, not in isolation, to the apostles' teaching, to the gospel, to the good news about Jesus, the thing that we have in our Bibles, the apostles' teaching has been passed down to us in this book that we get to readily open up and is available to us at any moment. But they did it together, not just in isolation. Together, not independently. They broke bread. They did real life together. They spent time together investing in their relationship. They prayed together, together, not solo. And listen, praying solo in your prayer closet is awesome. We can present God our needs. We can hear from him. This prayer idea is to have a conversational relationship with the God of the universe. But they did this together. And this word prayer that lies behind here in the original language doesn't just mean presenting our request to God and talking to him. It would have also included worship, singing, gratitude, expressions of thankfulness to God and to Jesus for all that he had brought them into and made available to them. Guys, together, they devoted themselves to fellowship. And fellowship is not something that you do in the cafe after weekend services. Might be a little bit, but it's not so, you actually can't do fellowship in the cafe afterwards. You can't, you can't do fellowship in a simple five-minute conversation about football and inflation. You can't. Why? Well, because what fellowship means, the word means, it refers to this group of people, this group who enjoys a deep, oh man, family, a deep family-like bond where we're committed to the good of each other no matter what, even if it costs us greatly, we're committed. A group who enjoys a deep family-like bond and a group that is resolutely committed to one another because they have common affiliations unified commitments, and they have shared experiences in Christ. We all share in the life of Christ that he poured out for us at the cross. And they have shared experiences that exist, that exist among them. Guys, I think it's evident that the early church just could not have conceived of a thriving and a growing relationship with Jesus 
that didn't also involve a thriving and growing relationship with Jesus' bride, the church, the people that he ransomed by his own blood and brought into his father's family. The early church knew that you cannot be nurtured, you cannot grow, you cannot be adequately cared for in this salvation life, in a relationship with Jesus, unless you embrace community. And I don't think I could say it any better than one theologian as he looked at this passage. He says, in speaking about God's work in salvation, we often repeatedly emphasize the individual, which this makes sense, right? When you talk about baptism as being so immersed in something that it becomes a part of you, man, we are so thoroughly baptized in our culture by this sick ideology of rugged individualism. And unfortunately, I think what this theologian brings out is that we can often read those things right into the pages of Scripture. He says, we repeatedly emphasize the individual, that God saves individual sinners. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to get him wrong either. Notice this first part of the next sentence. Correct as that is, we aren't for a second going to claim that God doesn't rescue individual people by the blood of Jesus into relationship or that it doesn't matter that we make a decision for Christ. No, we must repent individually. We must believe and we must follow that up in obedience and baptism. But correct as that is, this focus all too often settles for a truncated understanding of what salvation actually is. And this results in an inadequate view of Jesus' church, his bride. Because God's purpose, yes, is the salvation of individuals. Jesus died for you. He died for me. But God saves us together, not in isolation. And he saves us to bring us into community. He saves us for community, not out of it. And God's concern does not end with the redeemed person as an individual. Rather, God desires a reconciled humanity, a humankind, who is living on a renewed creation. And this reconciled man, humanity is enjoying God's own presence forever, forever. Now listen, community is this key aspect, this key aspect. It's God's method for your transformation for your growth in the salvation life so that we might all become more and more and grow to be more and more like Jesus together, together. Now, as we think about that, think about all those ideas and all those powerful things that I believe scripture is communicating to us about salvation life, we might then ask the question, well, how do we bring this down to our level? What are some practical takeaways? What can we do in light of this? What might be our method and a step that we could take? And actually, as I look to uh, just offer a few reflections on this, I want to first uh, start by um, directing my uh, verbiage to a specific audience in the room. And that is, if you are not a follower of Jesus today, and if you, as someone who doesn't name Christ as Lord, if the Holy Spirit of God has been working in you throughout the proclamation of the word of God, because those two pair really well together in scripture. If you've heard the proclaimed word today in scripture, and if the Holy Spirit is doing something in, in your heart right now, if he is leading you to trade up your vision 
of what life is all about and you controlling it, to trade that in to say yes to Jesus. I want to encourage you with everything that I have this morning. That is the voice of the Holy Spirit. Respond to that voice. And how do you do that? Repent. Change your mind. You can lay down your way of doing life. Jesus has taken care of that at the cross. Know the gospel story. The good news is that Jesus died on the cross to take the weight and the penalty and the consequences of all your sin, of all your rebellious acts and your rebellious attitude toward God. And Jesus freely offers you life when you change your mind, lay down your allegiances and place your allegiance in him, your faith and your trust in him. And then my encouragement to you, if you do that today, is to do exactly what we've been talking about, exactly what Peter says. Be baptized. And listen, talk to me after service. Go to the Welcome Center. Anybody on our team, we want to not only celebrate with you, we want to equip you and resource you to grow in the Christian life, and we also want to get you connected to baptism. We want you to be baptized. But don't miss this. You also need to connect to community. Be encouraged to link yourself up with other followers of Jesus in the family. Receive the resource that God has given to spiritually mature you. Get connected with other followers of Jesus. And so if that's you this morning, you might be like, okay, I want to get connected to other followers of Jesus in that sequence. How do I do that? What's a step? Now, this is where I would actually zoom out, and I would want to address everyone in the room, from the person who's been following Jesus for maybe two minutes to the person who's been following Jesus for 20, 40, 60 years. This is for you, all right? To get involved in community at the Medina East Campus involves something that we call life groups. And you're like, here we go. We're gonna beat the dead horse, aren't we? (laughs) But listen, what do we say? If you're not in a, get in a life group, right? Now listen, guys, life groups are not magical. They're not going to instantaneously do the trick. Neither are life groups the only way you can get biblical community. They're not the only way. Life groups are simply our church's expression. They're a way to get you plugged into what Jesus wants for you to grow you. That's what they are. They're, They're groups, they're smaller groups of people that meet weekly that are simply and imperfectly trying to live out Acts 2.42 in our life together, to be devoted to God's word together, to fellowship, to sense that deep shared experience of being part of the family of God together, to break bread together, which is sharing a meal, but it's also probably a reference to partaking of communion together. We want to pray together. That's all life groups are. And listen again, you can get biblical community anywhere. It's fine. But this is what we're offering. And so my encouragement to you is if you're not in a life group, get plugged into a life group. See me after class, right? Talk to anybody on our team. We want to come alongside you and figure out what the best life group is for your schedule, for your kids, for your family, all that kind of stuff. Because every life group is different and it's different on purpose. And let me just say this. Even if you know your schedule would prohibit you from connecting with one of our life groups, I want you to still come talk to me. Talk to somebody on our team. 
We want to come alongside you to partner with you to figure out these outside-the-box ways of getting connected to biblical community because that is what we are serious about. And lastly, I'll say this. I'll say this before we close, and I'm going to invite the band up here as we do. I should acknowledge at the end here what some of you might be thinking when we start talking about actually taking steps to get involved in community and be in a life group. Some of you might be thinking, and I get it, well, Pastor Seth, I've, I've tried a life group before, or I've tried the biblical community thing before, and it got really messy. It was a disaster. It collapsed. Some of you might be like, I tried the biblical community thing. It's really hard to go back because I got hurt. There's a lot of pain. It feels like wherever I go, there's like this trail of broken relationships from people who are supposed to love me. What do I do with that? Some of you are like, life group is awkward. It felt like week after week experiencing Pastor Steve doing announcements. Right? (laughs) I love you, Steve. He gave me permission, by the way, for that one. Some of you might be like, well, some of the people were really great, but other people, man, they annoyed the crap out of me. And I say that on the stage because that's what we all think. And maybe you just didn't like life group. That's not for me. Maybe you don't have time for it. Or maybe if you're just really honest with yourself, you're like, I don't see it as a priority. I don't see that it's essential. Guys, if that's you, please hear me. I get it. I have been there. Guys, I hate 70% of the people in my life group. Which is comical because most of the people on the stage behind me are in my life group. I love all of you. I love all of you. So it's actually just 30%. I only hate 30% of the people. Like, no, just kidding, of course. But can I just be honest with you? Can I just be honest with you for one second? Like I haven't been honest already. <laughs> it is 100% true that when you decide to get into biblical community, that at some point, at some point, you will be wounded. You will. It will be awkward. You'll get tired. Guys, I can't tell you how many times I lead a life group. I can't tell you how many times, 30 minutes before I'm supposed to be at the place where our life group meets, I'm like, I don't want to do this tonight. I'm not feeling this tonight. You're going to be annoyed by people, and you are just going to feel like it's not worth prioritizing. But here's the thing. Guys, I think that is exactly the things that Jesus uses to continue to work his salvation life into you. Those are the exact things. Because think about it. If progressively growing in the Christian life, in the salvation life, involves us becoming more and more like who? More and more like Jesus? Then doesn't that mean that Jesus is going to love me enough to give me plenty of opportunity to lay down my preferences, to lay down my pride, to humble myself, to sacrifice, to pour myself out so that another person could have life, so that I could love and serve them? Who does that sound like? The God of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, humbling himself to become like us, to serve us, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Listen, if you are praying fervently 
for things like patience and perseverance and compassion in your life. You're praying nonstop to Jesus for those things, which are Christ-like qualities through and through. Because how do you suppose that Jesus, through the power of his Holy Spirit in you, is going to work that into you? Right? We learn and we grow in things like patience, perseverance, and compassion when we are around other people who require patience and around other people who are hurting and they need someone to hear their story. They need someone to understand their pain and someone who's so committed to them to walk alongside them through the worst of it and grow in Jesus together. As bottom line is, community is non-negotiable. It is a part of the vivid salvation experience that Jesus invites us into. Guys, you need to know that it is my dream, it is our church's dream to get everyone plugged in and connected to that, to help you all discover Jesus' salvation power by living life together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we, in a symbolic act, bow our heads before you. And I think we do that because it's a symbol and a sign that you're the king, that you're the Lord of all. And so as we come to you, the Lord of all, who would decide to lay aside the prerogatives, the privileges of his divine status and come to us to die a brutal and horrifying death and to rise again so that you could freely offer the life that you, man, you really want this for us. So we bow our heads and we honor you and we start by saying thank you for doing what you did. And we acknowledge that even what we're about to do in singing and declaring truths about you and to you together, we just invite you by your spirit to enliven a posture and a heart of worship to express our gratitude for those things. Jesus, you have given us this salvation life, and we are grateful. And Jesus, we are also in recognition, and we're asking that your spirit do a work in our heart to also enliven us to the reality of the family that you brought us into, of the brothers and sisters that we can now say we have if we follow you because of what you've done. And Jesus, we are asking, would you do a work in our hearts to transform us into seeing the great value and the great purpose of your people? And would you help us, regardless of what obstacles and hindrances might stand in front of us or in between us and this idea of community, would you help us overcome those by the power of your spirit? Would you do a work in us so that we can be constituted around one another in praise and worship of you always, so that we can grow to be like you in community? Pray this in your name, the name that is above every other name. You're the king.